Good morning. You know, a couple months ago when I got the opportunity to preach, I don't know if y'all can see any time I preach up here, I've got several pieces of paper laying here with me. I tend to type out my notes what I want to say. I don't write everything word for word, but it's a little bit more than just kind of a very generic outline. Um, That way, if I kind of get off course, I can look back and see, okay, this is where I was trying to go with this point. Um, A couple months ago, I went a little bit longer than I meant to go on the sermon, and so I was putting my notes together this morning, and I realized... Okay, it's about the same length typed-wise that it was last time. Well, so I, I told Cale this morning, I said, I think I got that taken care of and bought myself some more time. I just I shrank the font, what I printed it in, and now it's all shorter again. So um, hopefully I won't, I won't try to go as long as I did last time. But when we come to this building on Sundays, do we ever stop to think about why we're actually here? What's the purpose for us being here on Sunday mornings? Um, Do we know why we come to worship God? Do we know whether or not the things that we're doing to worship God, are we actually doing the things that he wants us to do? Or are we simply carrying on traditions that our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or however many generations before us, that's what they've always done. And so we're going to continue to do the same thing because I'm assuming somewhere along the line somebody's looked into this and they must have done it right, so I'm sure I'm okay. Have we ever really gone back to the Bible to, to make sure that what we do during this assembly is actually what God wants us to do? You know, um, there, there's really two ways that you could worship maybe in a, in a wrong application. John Calvin once said about the human heart that it is a factory of idolatry. And what he was meaning by that is, is so ingrained into the human the human spirit into the human soul, I guess, is our desire to want to worship God. God has programmed that into our brains that we want to worship. And so if we don't know God, if if we don't, if we've never um, studied about him and, and become a Christian, we still have that desire ingrained in us to want to worship something. And so he made the comment that the human heart is a factory of idolatry that if we're not worshiping God, we're going to be worshiping something else because it's ingrained into us. And so we start creating these false gods. You know, we're told in Acts chapter 4, it says there is no other way to salvation. No other way that you can come to God except through Jesus Christ. And so I'm fairly confident to say that we're not worshiping false gods. That's one way that you could worship incorrectly is you're actually worshiping the wrong thing. So I'm confident to say we are not doing that here at Pippin. But what if we're worshiping the true God, but we're doing it falsely? What if we're not worshiping false gods, but we're, wa- we're worshiping God falsely? We're not worshiping him the way that, he's supposed, that he wants to be worshiped. You know, there's many instances in Scripture where it, it, it gives examples of people doing this, where they're not worshiping God the way that he wanted to be worshiped. And there was punishment that came along with it. You know, one of the most common ones that we probably think of is Nadab and Abihu about them offering profane fire to the Lord. And if you stop and think about it, they were still performing an act of worship of what God had commanded during the Old Testament times. They were going to sacrifice. But the problem was they didn't do it right. They were offering fire that God had not commanded them to offer. And we all know the punishment that they received because of that. In 1 Corinthians, um, when Paul is, is writing to the church in Corinth, they were doing the Lord's Supper. But, God, but Paul was condemning them for the way that they did it, the method they went about doing it. And so the Bible tells us it is possible to worship God, but to worship him in a manner that he doesn't approve of. 
Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, it says that these people draw near to me with their mouths, that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Are we doing that when we come here on Sunday mornings? Are we sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? So what I want us to do for a little while this morning, there's a couple questions I want us to look at is, what is worship? Why do we worship? Who gets to decide what we do during our worship? And then what does God expect from us when we're here worshiping? So we're going to go through those four things. A couple of them we may spend, obviously, a little bit more time on. Some of them we'll go through fairly quickly. So very first thing, what is worship? What, what's the definition of it? What is it that I'm doing in my life that constitutes worship? You know, a lot of times I think when somebody asks, how do we worship God? What, what are we doing when we worship? Sometimes maybe we're a little bit too vague about it, that it's just this very general concept. Or sometimes we may even look at it just completely wrong. And, and we'll, we'll consider that here in just a second, is every single thing I do in, during my life, from the time I get up to the time I go to sleep, is it considered worship? We'll look at that. The Pentecostals seem to want to emphasize from a worship standpoint that if you're not feeling it emotionally, if, you're not, if you don't have that feeling, that exuberance, that you're, that you're just you're on fire for God, then you didn't do it correctly. But is that true? You know, the, the Catholics really kind of go to the other side of the coin that it's more ritualistic, that they go through these rituals, these, these customs they do over and over and over. And it doesn't really matter if the person they're participating doesn't even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. But as long as they went through those steps, then they worshiped. What does the Bible tell us that worship really is? Turn with me over to John chapter 4. And I say this every time I get up here. Everybody get your Bibles out. There's a lot of scriptures that I'm going to go to. I really want to hear pages turning. I don't want you all to just trust me in what I'm saying. Uh, the Bible expects us to dig into the word for ourselves. And so make sure that what I'm telling you really is what the Bible says. So turn over to John chapter 4. And we, we've all heard this where Jesus is going and he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Let's start reading in verse 20. And here I, I want... I want to let Jesus define to us what worship really is. Verse 20, the Samaritan woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, what we worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, so we've all heard this before. We all must worship in spirit and truth. But I think there's a few more elements in that that Jesus talked about that sometimes we kind of brush over just a little bit. And so what does Jesus define here as what truly is worship? The very first one, it rec and this, and the reason we brush over these, it may be just because it's kind of common sense. You have to have a worshiper. You have to have someone that is performing the worship. And so it says here, let's see, verse 23, when true worshipers. And so you have to have someone that is worshiping. Then you have to have an object of the worship. It says that true worshipers will worship the Father. And so... We can worship really anything, if you think about it. We as individuals, I mean, we could, we could choose a rock out here to worship if that's what we wanted to do. That's not what God commanded us to do. 
There's a lot of people around this world that do that, that create idols for themselves, and that's what they worship. But you have to have a worshiper. You have to have an object of the worship. Then your ob- the object that you're worshiping, it requires you to do it in spirit, that we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. We all know the Bible says that. And then it requires the truth. The method by which we're going about the worship has to be the way that God wants it done. So you have to have a worshiper. You have to have an object of what's being worshipped. You must do it in spirit with all of your heart, and you must do it in truth. You must do it by the correct method. God, does he have to accept whatever worship we want to present to him? And I I think that's a misconception that a lot of people throughout the denominational world has is I, I don't get anything out of worship when I do it that way, but I really feel good when I worship over here. There was a a young man that I studied with one time um, at a congregation we used to attend, and he he came to the congregation with us for a while, fairly young guy, and he left the congregation and went to a denomination to worship, and we we studied with him. We tried really hard not to get him to go, and the reason he gave, he said, when I come here to worship, I I just don't feel anything. When I go over there, I feel like I'm on fire. But does that mean that because what you're doing over here gives you a certain feeling, does that mean you still did it like God wants you to do it? All right, turn with me to over to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. And I really think this will drive that point home, and it's important to understand that God is in control of this situation. Isaiah 29, start reading in verse 15. It says, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, Who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say to him who made him, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding? So when a a potter is sitting there at the turning wheel, the clay has no control over that potter. We are that clay. God is that potter. God has full control over what he wants from us. We don't get to decide what we want to do. All right, so let's, let's look at this real quick, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this is something that you're going to hear all throughout the denominational world, and it's, it's really starting to pick up a lot of steam. I, I can speak for my generation. I couldn't tell you from a lot of generations before that if this is what pe- people really uh, believe, but is everything I do in my life considered worship? Is there anything different between what we do here in this building and then what I do this afternoon or what I do tomorrow or what I do Tuesday? Is the way that I go to work or the way I go to school, is that technically worshiping God? Because if it is, it really opens up worship to a whole other realm of what's required of us. I'm, I'm not going to read through it. There's several times during the, the sermon today I'm going to go very quickly through a couple verses. I encourage you, if you've got a pen, notebook, or whatever, to go ahead and pull that out, jot down some of these scriptures so you can go look them up on your own. But when the Bible talks about worship, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about the wise men going to Jesus to worship him. They weren't worshiping him where they were at. They were going to go to him to go worship. Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, verses 8 and 9, Satan wants Jesus to bow down and worship him. He wanted Jesus to do something different than what he was doing, a physical act to be done. This one I do want you to turn to, Genesis chapter 22. 
Genesis chapter 22, and we've all heard this story about Abraham and the sacrifice he was going to make with his son Isaac. But in verse 5, listen to what Abraham says when they get to where they're going, because they had a group of men that went with them to help carry a lot of materials. Genesis 22, verse 5, it says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkeys. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham obviously understood that what he was doing, riding the donkeys, getting to that place, preparing everything, that wasn't worship. Him and Isaac were going to go over there and worship. They weren't already in a state of worship. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was on his way to Jerusalem to go and worship. And so if we look at life that every single act I do, everything I do is an act of worship to God, well, the Bible says that we all sin and fall short. Well, is this instances when I'm in the process of committing sin, is that worshiping God? We have to separate in our minds the difference between worship to God and service to God. A lot of people want to put those into the same realm. They're very, very closely related, but they are not the same thing. What we go about our daily life doing, the way we interact with people, that is our obedience, our service to God. It is not a worship setting. So I think that's important to distinguish right now so that we can go through the rest of this conversation. That's what we're talking about is the worship itself. What we're doing here this morning, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? All right, so the next question, why do we worship? This is probably going to be the quickest point we hit. It's very simple. God said to. That's the only reason we need. God said to do it. John chapter 4, what we just read a minute ago, it said he's seeking those who will worship him. He wants us to worship him. Turn over to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. That's what Lester read for us just a minute ago. I really want you to listen to the words of this passage. It's beautiful what's being said. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, let's start reading verse 23. And, and think about, as we're reading this, why would we not want to worship God? Why would we want to do anything else? 1 Chronicles 16 verse 23, it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees and the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Why would we not want to do that? God wants us to do it. He commands us to do it. But we should have that desire to want to do it as well. All right, so the next question, who gets to decide how we worship God? Do the elders at our local congregation get to make that decision? Do they get to decide what we do in worship to God? We already talked a little bit about is, is all worship acceptable? Can, can I go anywhere that I want to go, do anything that I want to do in worship, and it be acceptable to God? 
You know, the Bible tells us that God says that his ways are higher than our, our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't necessarily have to be able to understand why God said to do something a certain way, but the simple fact is God said to do it, and we're to obey that. Now, I think where people really get off base is once we get to the place in our lives where we start saying, I'm the one who gets to decide how I worship, we've missed a very fundamental aspect of what worship really is. Worship all throughout Scripture, anything that you see in Scripture, where it's all the way back to burning of incense, sacrificing animals in the Old Testament, all the way up to what God commands us to do today, everything about worship has been bringing to God what he wanted, what he commanded, in the way that he wanted it done. Every single time. And so once we get to the point that says, I decide how I worship, I do what makes me feel good, we have missed the very fundamental aspect of what worship really is. It's not about us. It's about God. And we do exactly what he wants us to do, whether we think we understand it or not. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Why was Abel's sacrifice to God better than Cain's sacrifice to God? Remember, they both offered a sacrifice to God. Were they not both trying to worship? What made Abel's better than Cain's is Abel gave God what he wanted. Cain didn't. And so Cain's was rejected because of that. If you read through 1 Kings chapter 12, <clears throat> in reading through 1 Kings, you get a lot of history, a, a lot of things that, that went on with the, the nations of Israel and Judah <clears throat> and who their kings were and, and, and what they were like. But in 1 Kings chapter 12, it tells us about the, the king Jeroboam and what Jeroboam did. He was concerned about the political influence that he would have over the kingdom. And so he decided, well, if, if people really go over here to worship like they're supposed to, that's too far away, and I'm going to start losing the, the subjects that I have, their, their desire to want to be my subjects and my followers. So he didn't want them leaving that far away from where he was at. And so he decided instead of them going over there to worship, he was going to set up different locations of worship than where God had said to do it. And so he set up in two different cities and said, okay, you all are going to worship over here. You people are going to go worship over here. If you continue reading through 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam had the kingdom stripped for him because of that. It was not his place to decide that. God had already dictated what he wanted done. Jeroboam changed it, and he lost the kingdom because of what he did. All right, so we've looked at what is worship and why do we worship and who gets to decide what we do during worship. Now, what is it then that God says we're supposed to be doing here during worship? Are there things that we're missing during our worship service? When we present worship to God, are, are we leaving something out? Have we added in a few things that maybe we shouldn't be doing? I want to go through a list of several things that God says we are supposed to be doing in worship to him. One thing that we have to remember a lot of people, when they go to the Bible to try to justify what they do during a worship setting, they go back to the Old Testament. We have to understand we are not under the Old Testament anymore. We're told in Colossians 2.14 that when, when, God, or when Jesus died, he took that old law that was given to the children of Israel that they were under, and he nailed that to the cross. We are no longer under that old law. We cannot go back to the Old Testament to look for justification and for instruction for what we're to be doing during worship. 
the way we are to worship God is going to fall under the new law that he has given us, and so we have to go to the New Testament to look for it. If we were under that old law, a, lo a lot of people try to use that as going back to justify using musical instruments as part of their singing for worship. And there's still controversy around whether or not the old law even justifies that. But still, it, it doesn't really matter whether it justified it or not. We can't go back to that today. And if we could, they would also have to be doing animal sacrifices. They would also have to be burning incense. You can't pick and choose what you wanted. So we're not under that old law today. We need to look at what the new law gives us today. And, and the way that you find those examples of how we're supposed to be worshiping, it's either one, it's a command. We've been told to do it. Or two, we look back at examples in Scripture of what the New Testament church did. What were they doing during their worship that the apostles were there among them doing as well? And that's examples to us what we should be doing today. So the first one, and these are in no particular order, so it's not that one's any better than another one. At the end of the day, it's all worship. It's all supposed to be done. First one is singing. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, and I know everybody's heard this before, but it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Then over Ephesians chapter 5, it basically repeats that same thing again, almost word for word. So we're not going to go look at it as well. So we're told that we're to sing and to admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and, hymns and spiritual songs. But remember, I said there's a difference between what we do here as an assembly worshiping and what we do in our, our daily lives, what we go do outside of here. And so when it says that we're to sing these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to build each other up, is that meaning we're to do it here in a worship setting, or is that what we're supposed to be doing individually? And so we have to look, did the early church do this? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, saying, I will, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Now, if you'll notice that, that's a quote from back in the Old Testament, but they've pulled it into the New Testament as well, giving an example of what they should have been doing. Mine says, in the midst of the assembly. It uses the word assembly there. Some other translations may use a different word. Some say the congregation. But is that talking about this assembly right here, or is it talking about something else? You know, if you go back to the original Greek language, you know what that word assembly really is? Ekklesia, the word we use for church. That is to be done within the church. We are to sing praises to God. And so these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, those are acts of worship we're supposed to be doing within the church, within this assembly. And so the, the types of, of what those songs are, I've heard a lot of questions before. Okay, what is a psalm? What is a hymn and what is a spiritual song? And I've heard some people say, well, it doesn't really matter to distinguish between them. You just sing. Well, I thought it would be nice to look at what are these really. And so I pulled out a commentary that, the commentary that David Lipscomb had written just to go through and see what he, had, um, what he had defined each of these to be. And he goes back to the root words of the original language is where he gets these definitions. A psalm, he says, is a song of praise. is to glorify God in his power. And he says that's the reason, too, if you look at the book of Psalms, all these different songs that David had written, that's why they're called psalms. That's what he's doing is he's glorified God for the, for the power and majesty that he really has. That's called a psalm. A hymn is a song of thanksgiving. It's supplication and teaching our dependence on God. 
And then the, the spiritual songs are ones where we're trying to inspire and we're trying to cultivate this feeling of devotion that we have to God. And so if you, you think of our songs that we have in the songbook, every one of those songs are, are going to fit into one of those three categories. It's a psalm, it's a hymn, or it's a spiritual song based on those definitions. So the question, how should we be doing this singing? Should we be using instruments in our worship? I do not have time to go through that entire thing right now, but I'm going to give you the simple answer is no. The Bible gives us no authority to do that. And if we want a further explanation of that, Randy did a very good job of that. Everybody knows we put recordings of all of our sermons on our website. So go to www.pippincoc.com. There is an archive of every sermon that's been preached here back, I think, to 2005. So 11 years, almost 12 years worth of archive sermons. August 3rd, 2014, Randy preached a sermon that goes through it in detail about why that's not to be done. Go look it up. But the simple fact is, no, we do not have the authority to use instruments in our worship. Can we use a choir when we sing? A lot of denominations use choirs. They have people up singing solos. The Bible does not give authority for a single person or even a group of people to be singing while everybody else is sitting and listening. The commands to sing in the Bible are given to all Christians. And so as Christians, if we're sitting here during a worship assembly and we just have a certain group of people that's up singing or even one person and we're all sitting and listening, are the rest of us sitting there listening not sinning because we're just listening? We're not singing like God commanded us to do. The simple fact is we all must sing, and the command is for everybody to sing. And unfortunately, I don't think that's something just within the Lord's church that's an issue. I think every denomination has an issue with this, but we're all commanded to sing. It doesn't matter if I can't sing good or sing well. It doesn't matter if my singing actually makes it sound worse for the whole congregation. Nothing in Scripture talked about our singing having to actually sound good. It just said sing. It's about the message of the song, and it's about our hearts during the process. So even within this congregation, if we sit out here and we don't sing, we just stand there with our mouths closed the whole time, that's sin. We're breaking a command of God. And, and I will tell you as a song leader, and the other song leaders in here could tell you the same thing, we know there's people in the congregation that don't sing. We see it. We're physically standing up here watching it. We have to sing these songs to, to the Lord, to praise him, to edify one another, or it is sin. All right, let's go on to the next one, prayer. This is one thing that is possibly one of the most, I guess, most taken for granted gift that we have as a Christian. We get to talk to the creator of the universe. We get to talk to the, the being that, that is over everything. And do we really take that as seriously as we should? Our prayer, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And again, this is going to be looking at, did the early church, did they pray during their assemblies? 1 Corinthians 14, and this again is, is similar to what we've been going through during our adult class with Brother Randy, is going through the different spiritual gifts. This is getting a little bit ahead of where he's at, but it's talking about during their worship, being able to have interpreters for the tongues that they have. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 14, let's start reading verse 12 says, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. The context of this is they're talking about how they're handling their spiritual gifts during their worship setting. 
So they're praying during their worship setting in the early church. We may not be doing it with tongues and the spiritual gifts today because those are gone. The Bible tells us those are done away with at this point because what is perfect has now come, which is the scriptures. But either way, there's examples of them praying during worship in the early church. So who is it that we're supposed to be praying to and who are we praying through? We're told in Matthew chapter 6, and this is back to the model prayer that Jesus prayed, is we're to be praying to God. And then we're told in 1 Timothy 2 that there is a mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. We pray to God, but we pray through Jesus. And that's the reason you hear at the end of most prayers it says, in Jesus' name. That's indicating that he is the mediator that we are going through in our prayers. So again, what should we be praying for? And again, I'm not going to go to each of these. I'm just going to go through quickly. So if you want to get a pen out and write these down, you can go look them up. There's a lot of different things that the Bible talks about we should be praying for. Matthew chapter 6, again, this is part of Jesus' model prayer, that we should be praising God in our prayers. 1 Timothy 2, the first four verses, it goes through several different things that you should pray for, that we should be giving thanks, and we should be praying for those that have secular authority over us, whether it's kings, nobles, whatever they are, we need to be praying for them that we all live peaceful lives. 1 John 1, 9 says we should be confessing our sins in prayer. Matthew 5, 44, we pray for those who persecute us. 3 John 2, we're to pray for the health of others. And again, back to the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6, we're to be praying for our physical needs, and we're to pray for help through times when we're being tempted. Philippians 4, 6, we're to pray for basically any request that we have that is scriptural in nature, that if we ask, we will receive. And there's a lot more, but that's just a couple of examples. Now, does every prayer have to include every one of those things? No. But those are examples of things that we are to be praying for because we see prayers in Scripture that are doing those same things. The Bible also commands that we are to be praying on our own in private. Not every prayer is supposed to be given in just a public assembly. So is it actual contradiction for the Bible to talk about where you're to go into your room and into your closet and to pray where others can't hear you? Though that can't be a contradiction because it talks about them praying in their assemblies as well. So there is a difference between a public prayer and one that's done in private. And so chances are during our worship assembly, the prayers that you're going to hear are praying more for stuff that deals with the, the congregation here, the church in general. Very rarely, and, and I would almost say at times it may be inappropriate to pray in a public setting like this for something that is very personal to you. Because other people may not know what you're talking about. How can they pray along with you in a situation like that? All right, next one. What about giving? All throughout Scripture, we are talked about God's people being told to give. Whether it's in the Old Testament and animal sacrifices and, again, burning incense, they were to be giving of their things. Also, they were to be tithing. They were to be putting things into the storehouse. Well, the New Testament teaches us that we should be giving. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We should still be there if you turn to the last pa passage, so just flip over a chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think I said verse, or chapter 6, sorry, chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, now, and again, I know we've all heard this, but let's read it together. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, there be, that there be no collections when I come. So on the first day of the week, we are all, as Christians, to lay something aside that we are to give to our local congregation. And again, it's so that when there's a need, they don't have to come and we've got to scramble and we've got to gather everything up right then. So there'll be no collections when he comes. It's all sitting there ready to go. That's the way that God has commanded us to basically fund the work of the local congregation in the kingdom that he has set up. 
is we are supposed to be giving. Now, what about tithing? That's a question a lot of people have. And, and it's something I think a lot of people struggle with is are we commanded today as part of God's church to be tithing? Now, tithing, just the, the concept and the definition of it is a tenth, is to be giving a tenth. Now, if you really go back to the Old Testament, under the old law, everything, if you add up the, what they had to give, not just the tithing they had to give to put into the storehouses, but even the animals they had to give for sacrifices, it, it added up to so much more than 10%. It wasn't just 10% that they gave. That's just the tithe portion of it. But what about us today? The New Testament gives no command for a tithe. Now, I will say that most people probably still use that as a good rule of thumb today, is when they give in the contribution, most people probably go around the 10%. And it's just because of that concept of the tithe. But there is no command for a tithe in the New Testament. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how much we're supposed to be giving, is what we purpose in our hearts to give. So it's not a, a hard rule, you have to give this amount. It's what each of us as Christians feel that we need to be doing, what we purpose in our hearts for it. But I want us to back up a chapter and look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3. And I think this really puts into perspective is where do we place the importance of the church and the work of the church and God in our budget that we do in our personal lives. Read 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3 with me. It says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. They had people giving, not just of what they were able to give. There were people that went well beyond what they were capable of giving. And so we can see in the early church, they placed a huge priority on them giving to the local congregation as part of their worship. Even going beyond what they thought they were able to really do as part of their budget. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this just for time's sake to keep moving on. A lot of congregations do this. We do it um, as well. There's not many congregations that will actually split the contribution in the Lord's Supper drastically. A lot of times they're done at the same time, and it's just for expediency because you already have men up here that can pass plates around and stuff. The contribution and the Lord's Supper are not the same thing. Just because they are done typically at the same time, we put a song in between ours. Um, it is The contribution is not part of the Lord's Supper. I think that's something we all need to truly understand, that it is a completely separate act of worship. All right, let's go on to the next one, the fourth one. What about preaching and reading from God's Word? You know, if you really think about the New Testament, most of it is really revolving around preaching. It's, it's documenting Jesus's life and what he did going and ministering and preaching to other people, but it, also the letters that we read to the Corinthians, the Colossians, the Philippians, those are letters that, that Paul and, and others wrote to these congregations teaching them and preaching to them. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Go ahead and turn to that. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And we'll stay there because we'll come back to this one again in just a minute for something else. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So when they came together to worship, there was preaching. Paul preached to them. He shared a message from God's word with them. What is our preaching supposed to be like? What are we supposed to include in our preaching? Again, here's another list of scriptures I'm going to go through. Get your pens out. Write these down. 
Acts 17, 30 and 31, we're to be warning the lost of the coming judgment. 1 Peter 2, 2, the fundamental principles that, that young Christians need to know. That's what we're supposed to be preaching about. But also in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about we need to be giving more meatier subjects to those that are more mature. So there needs to be a good balance between those two. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 is to rebuke those who are erring. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, we're to comfort the feeble. 2 Peter 2, 1, 2, 1 is to warn of false teacher, teachers. Ephesians chapter 4 it provides kind of a platform of the unity that we should have as Christians. And again, there's so many more verses that go through examples of what the preaching involved and what it included in the scripture. And this is one thing that I really want us to think about. And I know that I've been guilty of this at times. And it may be the way that we've kind of structured our, our services is do we overemphasize the preaching sometimes? Do we, do we come to this building to worship God and we think that the preaching is the worship? That if we're ever going to be late to services, we make sure we get there before the preaching starts. And everything else that we do as part of the worship, we're, just, we're, we're trying to maybe get through it a little bit quickly. That we're trying to hurry through it. We check the box. Okay, I did that. But the preaching, I'm going to sit here and pay attention to that. We've got to be careful not to overemphasize the preaching too much. That yes, it is one of the acts of worship that God commands from us. But it's no better than the other acts of worship, than the singing, than the praying, from reading from God's word. We're going to get to the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. The giving that we're doing, the preaching is no better than it. It is equal to it. It is an act of worship that we're supposed to be doing. All right, the last one we're going to look at, and I just mentioned, the Lord's Supper. There's several memorials that are talked about throughout the Bible. Um, the rainbow that God gave was his, his memorial basically saying, I'm not going to destroy the earth again with water and destroy man again. The Sabbath day that the children of Israel were supposed to keep was a remembrance to them so they remembered their deliverance out of Egypt and also about creation, again, the Passover with it being their deliverance out of Egypt. The two days of Purim, it talks about in Esther where it's for the children to remember um, Haman's plot that was, that was overthrown and he wasn't able to kill the Jews. They had two days of memorial where they were supposed to remember that. The Lord's Supper we have today is just like that. It is a memorial that God has given us for the sole purpose of remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, did the early church again do this during their assemblies? And we're not going to go to the passages. We've read several of them already. This Acts chapter 20 where I said to stay at verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, they came together, they took the Lord's Supper. Now, what's actually included in the Lord's Supper? When you go look at where Jesus instituted it, every time that it talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper, there's two elements involved. It's the unleavened bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the fruit of the vine, which represents his blood. Those are the only two elements involved in the Lord's Supper. So again, this is where our contribution, our giving, this is separate. It's, it's not the same as the Lord's Supper. And it's not always called the Lord's Supper in Scripture. It is called communion at times. It is called breaking of bread, which we just saw, and it's also called the Lord's table. So any of those are, are all referencing back to the same thing, the Lord's Supper that we're supposed to be doing. And, and again, it's not something that we should be trying to rush through to try to hurry up so we can get out of here at a certain time. It's an act of worship to memorialize the death of Christ that we need to put emphasis on it like it should be. So those five things the Bible gives as acts of worship that we should be doing to God every Sunday are singing, our giving, our reading, and our preaching, our prayer, and the Lord's Supper. We are commanded by God to do that 
as a church, as a group, on the first day of the week. So when we go maybe to visit another congregation, or even when we're coming here, we should all as Christians make sure that that's what we're doing. And, and we're not just doing it to check a box. We're doing it out of devotion and, and obedience to God. Our minds and our hearts should be involved in every aspect of this. We shouldn't be singing these songs just from habit, from memory. Are we really paying attention to the words that we're singing? Are they really getting across a message that we're wanting to get across? I mean, really pay attention to, are they giving a scriptural message? There are songs that are unscriptural. The messages they give and what they're saying is not supported by scripture. Are we sure we're paying attention to that? Do we think about God? Do we think about the sacrifice of Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper? During a prayer, are we praying along with the person who is leading us in prayer? Or is our mind wondering, thinking about all these other things I want to do later? It's easy to do. It's something we have to prepare ourselves for. I know a lot of times we prepare ourselves when we come to worship for the sermon. We bring our Bibles with us. A lot of times we'll bring notepads and pens to take notes. So we prepare for the preaching. But do we prepare for these other four things as well? Do we prepare our minds to pray? Do we prepare our minds to sing? Do we prepare to give? Or do we just pull our wallet out and just see whatever I got in there and grab something and throw on the plate right then? Or is it something that consciously we're, we're, we're making an effort to be ready for? Anytime that we do gather as a, as a church, we always have to remember that no matter what we're doing, if we're not children of God, the rest of it really doesn't matter. So I, w I will, I guess, offer the invitation at this point to, if from a traditional standpoint, we typically do it now at the end of the, of the sermon, is if there's anybody sitting out here that is not a Christian, if you are not a child of God, the things I talked about, you may do these things in worship, but it doesn't matter. You're not a child of God. There's no hope of heaven for you. We've all heard many times what we should be doing to become children of God. We're to hear the word and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you do believe that, then why are you waiting? What's the purpose? All you're doing is risking your life that you're going to die and have not gone through what God has said that you're supposed to do. And if that happens, the only possibility is hell. And that's not a place, obviously, that any of us want to go when we read Scripture. So if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we're to confess before others that he is that Son of God. We can't be ashamed to confess that. We're to be baptized in the waters that we have ready behind me and then go on living our lives the way that God wants us to live them. Maybe you've done that, and maybe you've got areas in your life that you failed in, that you've fallen short in, and just need forgiveness. You need to ask for the church to pray for you for strength. We're happy to do that as your family, and that's what we're commanded to do. So I do ask that if you have any of those needs, you come as we stand and we sing.